Hey, Dr. Makono. Yes, Dr. Morellos? I'm excited about our episode today with my old friend Jennifer Iacino Taylor and her organization, Little Man's Legacy. I am too. We've worked with Jen for over a year now as advisors at her nonprofit organization. And now that COVID restrictions are lifting, we can finally start to get the word out about the organization and Jen's mission. Yes. You know, since we started working with Jen, I've learned a great deal about child loss that I really didn't know before, including just how prevalent this experience is for expecting parents and the parents of infants, and just how devastating this loss can be. I agree. I got to know Jen and her husband, Don, through you when they asked us to serve as advisors to them in their mission to raise awareness about child loss and to help them provide resources and support to families who've unexpectedly lost a child. Yes, and as people who do not have children ourselves, the experience has been a real eye-opener for me. When I was doing some research for this episode, I came across the Star Legacy Foundation, which is an organization much like Jen's. They had a good deal of information about child loss. For instance, did you know there will be 70 stillbirths just today in the United States? Wow, that's a very sobering statistic. Also, according to their website, one in four women will lose a baby during pregnancy, delivery, or infancy. Right, and one out of every 160 pregnancies will end in stillbirth, that is, death after 20 weeks of gestation but before the moment of live birth. And even more heartbreaking is how many parents suffer through this experience with minimal support. Exactly. To help rectify this, President Ronald Reagan declared the month of October as Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month in 1988. This was to bring attention to these tragedies and to hopefully help raise awareness about the unique kind of grief this experience can bring on. I think that's what makes Jen's mission special. This is a deeply personal journey for her and her family as she lived through the loss of a child. And that was just the beginning of her struggles surrounding this traumatic event. She's been through many other challenges, including navigating the healthcare system, religious influences, a lack of spousal understanding, and just trouble finding helpful support to help her process her emotions surrounding this loss. And that's what inspired her to create the Little Man's Legacy Foundation. First, to honor her son, Jonathan Todd, and second, to help ensure grieving parents suffering from child loss don't have to go through what she has. It's a great mission. And I think I can speak for both of us when I say that we were happy to lend a hand in getting the message out. I agree. And without further ado, let's get to the interview with Little Man's Legacy Foundation founder, Jen Iacino Taylor. Sounds good.
Thank you, Jen, so much for joining us. All of our listeners, we have Jen Iacino-Taylor from Little Man's Legacy with us for this episode. Jen, just thank you for being here. We are so appreciative for all of the work that you do, and we're very happy to have you with us today. And I was wondering if you could just start off and tell our listeners about yourself and about your organization. Of course. And thank you both for having me. So I'm a mom of four children, Jonathan being the oldest, um, he would be 26. And then I have two daughters and another son. And the youngest is actually just turned 21. Um, I'm married to my best friend and my soulmate, Dawn. And I have two wonderful yet crazy service dogs, Grant and Gracie. So about the organization, I started Little Men's Legacy in September of 2018 to honor my son that passed away at three months and nine days. The foundation was basically created on the thought of helping families through the worst days of their lives and to hopefully not be in the same situation I was when Jonathan or Little Man passed away to hopefully ease a little bit of the the stress that comes with a death, whether it's a child or any family member. So my thought process was to provide support from start to finish and all of the behind closed doors, difficult, overwhelming things that people have to deal with. And a lot of people um, on the outside don't know until you've been there. So those are the tough days that you need family, you need friends. After the funeral, everyone's gone and there's nobody else. So um, the whole point of the foundation was to try to give everybody that resource to have all the time at their fingertips. I had read somewhere that losing a child is probably the single most stressful thing that anybody could potentially experience. And we know that you were inspired to create this organization due to your deeply personal experience. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to share that experience with our listeners and talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Um, so I was married and it was an extremely unhealthy marriage. And I found out I was pregnant with little men about a month or two after I was married. And it was a rough pregnancy. I was high risk. I was supposed to be on bed rest. Unfortunately, the man I was married to refused to work. So instead of being on bed rest, I was on my feet 12 hours a day working Taco Bell as a shift manager. Um, went into preterm labor at three months, kind of, you know, went off and on from there with my preterm labor. Um, I had just turned 20 in January and Jonathan was born in February. He was my rainbow baby. And everything that I did from that point on was for my son. It was like nothing else existed but my son. The night before he passed away, I spent the night at my parents' house because his father and I were at odds yet again and spent the night with my parents. Little man woke up, was extremely fussy, really not himself. Um, no matter what I did, I couldn't pursue them on anything. My pop was playing with him. He couldn't get him to do anything. So I decided, okay, maybe he just needs to be in his own bed. So packed him up, put him in the car. My ritual with him and all of my kids is when we get in the car, they don't sleep. I don't want them to sleep in the car. I want them to eventually get to the point that they're enjoying everywhere we're going and seeing what we're doing. So he sat up in the front with me. I always had my hand on his car seat and he always played with my fingers. And when we got home, my now ex-husband wasn't home. I fed the baby, changed him, got him ready to lay down. By that time, James had come home. I laid the baby down, went to take a shower 
about 10 to 15 minutes into my shower, James came in and said, you need to come that there's something wrong with the baby. So I grabbed the towel, walked out. Jonathan was laying complete face down in the crib mattress. Um, I picked him up. He was completely blue. I laid him down on the floor and began CPR. Well, James called and talked to um, the paramedics and everything. I did CPR until police and fire got there. They took over, ended up taking him to the hospital. We got an escort by law enforcement. We sat in the lobby for two hours as they worked on little man. We had a nurse come out and tell me that little man had passed away. And I told her, I think with any parent that I was in shock and I was like, I don't believe you. I want to see my son. So she took me to the room where little man was and instructed me that I can't take any of the IVs or lines or anything that are in him out. And he had one in his arm and his leg and um, in his temple. And I said, okay. So they were all taped, sat down and held him for almost two hours, two and a half hours until the coroner got there. Um, by that time, James's side of the family was there. Um, my parents were there. Everyone had held him that wanted to hold him. When the coroner finally got there, I carried him out to the coroner's van and placed him in the little bed that they do and watched him drive off. When that happened, I just, I think I just had a blank stare on my face and really didn't know what I was supposed to feel or do next. And a lot of people were very concerned. So um, I wasn't um, allowed to walk home. The hospital was literally a block from where I lived. So I got a police escort home and literally went and destroyed the bedroom where the baby was, you know, just so angry. Um, it was just one of those that you never think that it's going to happen to you more or less anybody else. But it was probably one of the most difficult days I've had. So thank you so much for sharing that, Jen. I, I, I can only imagine how difficult that entire day must have been. How many years ago did Jonathan pass away? Um, he would be, he would have turned 26 this year. Wow. And I think that just speaks to how, how, how difficult that situation is. It's not something that a person ever gets over. Right. Would you agree? Yeah. Yes. And I think, um, I think with my situation and every, I've realized everybody's situation is different. My situation was um, my now ex-husband figured um, it was out of sight, out of mind. It didn't matter anymore. Why are we talking about him? Why are we grieving over him? Just let it go. So he was extremely controlling. So I wasn't allowed to go to the cemetery. And if I did, I had to sneak and do it. So I think grieving is a, a huge help in, you know, I don't want to say making it easier, but getting through the days a little bit easier. And I didn't have that until um, three years ago when we brought little man home. I'm just thinking about um, that. That's such a long time to kind of have that pent up to be unable to really kind of process through and experience all of those emotions. And, 
you talked about how oftentimes when people pass away, there's kind of a whirlwind that happens right afterwards. You're, you're planning the arrangements, lots of family and friends tend to be there. And then you said, you know, when everything is, is over, that can sometimes be the hardest part. And, you know, I, I'm kind of thinking about your foundation and, and how do you how have you kind of drawn on your own experience to be able to address some of the gaps that you experienced, um, difficulties that you noticed, or or lack of information or support that you experienced as as you went through kind of this process with Jonathan? Um, I think a, a lot of what I put into the foundation was everything that I learned, you know, from the lack of family and friends being there, but I also learned the hard way um, about the support groups that are out there for specific situations, i.e. Little Man Died of SIDS. Um, I went to my first SIDS meeting about a month after Little Man passed away. And literally halfway through the meeting, I got up and left. And it wasn't because it was hard. It was because the families that were in that support group were grieving a loss of a child, which I could relate to, but they couldn't relate to me on the realm that my son died at home. I worked on my son at home with the CPR and everything else. Their children died at daycare. And it's a great group that, you know, the SIDS Foundation has those support groups. But I think right then and there, I knew that there, there wasn't a group that I was going to fit into because my son died at home with me and these other parents were suffering the loss of their child dying away from them and them not having the same answers that I would like to have. And that's where I was coming with the, okay, well, that's what we have in common, but everything else is a disconnect. And there weren't support groups out there that covered what I was feeling and what information I needed. I'm one of these people. I have questions. I want to know why it's not, oh, well, he died of SIDS and this is what SIDS is. Okay. Well, tell me why. And there's no answer why. And I was just kind of left there. You know, when you leave the hospital, there's no one to say here, if you need something, call me. There's, you know, no victim to advocate. There's no law enforcement. There's nothing. And your family and friends are there until after the funeral. And then you're left wondering, okay, what do I do now? So with the resources that we're building on with the foundation, you know, we have both you and David with some amazing information. We have, uh, you know, books on there, not just for adults, but for children too, trying to explain stuff like that. And then we have a page that has counselors that are willing to, you know, work with families and everything to try to get them the resources that they need. So they're not left out feeling, okay, well, now I'm lost. What do I do? And I think that's so important is just being able to connect people with those resources. It's not that one person has to have all the answers, but sometimes, you know, I I find that people are just so overwhelmed that it's hard to even know where to look or who to ask or who to call. And I think having a foundation that can help to connect people with that um, really, it removes that obstacle that's there. Yes. And with myself, when little man passed away, I was on Medicaid. So people on Medicaid have, you know, there's the stigma, well, you're poor, you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, I can tell you, I was treated differently by law enforcement and everything because I was in a biracial relationship. 
all of that stuff played into the stereotypical way that people are treated, which I didn't like, because it's not like I didn't have a career and I didn't work. It's just, I didn't have someone who wanted to work with me to accomplish anything. So that's what I was left with. And I did my best. And I think people who have low income or no income are really pushed to the back to say, well, you're lower income you know, you you don't have feelings and and emotions and stuff like that, because that's how they made me feel. So that's another reason why we started a lot of the resources on the page. You know, I, I don't care if you're a millionaire, or if you have no money, we're going to help you if we can. Yeah, you know, Jen, as you were talking, I was thinking about grief, I've had to sort of become um, much more fluent in what grief is and how people process grief in the work that I do, you know, in the prison system. And I look at grief, uh, which is often sort of a uh, undercurrent that may wind up triggering substance abuse with mm-hmm. the men that I work with in the day to day. And I was just sort of thinking about that when you, when you were talking about your own experience and the experience um, and how your ex-husband was sort of reacting to it. And it, it's interesting to me because the way that men tend to process grief can be so incredibly different than the way women process grief. And I'm not you know, trying to draw, draw a justification for you know, your ex-husband's behavior or anything like that, but it would make sense to me at least to see somebody who doesn't want to face their true feelings or, or powerful emotions that come along with grief to just sort of try to write it off, you know, sort of stay in that denial stage of grief and sort of pretend like, well, okay, this is a, we're over this when in fact you haven't even begun to process it. So that was, that was an interesting experience that you had mentioned there. And so I wanted to ask you more um, about your grief journey and in your opinion, going through this, what has been the most important resource or thing in your life that's helped you get through this experience? I would have to say probably the last three years being married to my husband. um, He's been extremely supportive and having friends that are open to talk and ask questions and not be afraid to. um, I can tell you, I went full circle in grief when probably the first month little man had passed away. I went from anger, you know, and questioning religion to literally crying in the shower and then pulling it all together so I could go and be mom for, you know, my other kids and not let them know about anything. So I would have to say probably the last three years and having him home. So when you say home, I don't know the full story behind that. So how, how did that happen? So when he passed away, being raised Catholic, you don't cremate a baby because they haven't sinned. So therefore you don't, uh, you don't cremate them. So with my grandpa helping me with, you know, all of the funeral arrangements, we obviously had little man buried at Fairmount. Well, for 23 years, he was there and I never wanted him there. So I always felt, well, he's not really where he's supposed to be. So when Don and I became friends, I had talked to him about um, actually going and getting little man exhumed and then cremated and then have him at the house with me. And it was a process and we got it done. So three years ago on August 1st, we um, brought little man home and we watched the entire process from start to finish when we decided this and little man is home. 
and he has his own bedroom and I feel uh, a sense of relief and um, uh, I don't even know the, the right word for it, but glad that he's home. Sure. That's that's an interesting story. So I was not aware of that. And that is, again, another example of one of those hurdles that people don't foresee or don't even uh, probably would never consider as part of grieving the loss of a child or dealing with child loss. Yes, it's I can tell you um, from him being there at the cemetery for 23 years when I would go and spend time with him. It was always, okay, well, I'm here, but then I felt bad leaving, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm leaving my child. And that's how I felt every time I went to the cemetery. And so when I was finally able to have the support to talk to the cemetery about having him exhumed, which the cemetery had never dealt with before, and it was probably 45 days um, of paperwork and phone calls and everything, but they got it done. And the day that they were um, exhuming him, they actually let us go to the um, gravesite and watch the whole process. It was uh, an emotional day, but it was very fulfilling because my son was home. Well, and it, it sounds like, you know, Don has been such a great support to you and to the foundation and just having a person there who allowed you to grieve, allowed you to make decisions about what was best for you in your healing process. Uh, sounds like it was very powerful. Yes, it, it, his support was and has been and continues to be amazing. And when I have my we call them my down days. He's like, why don't you go spend some time with little man? And I'll go in little man's room and I'll take little man off his bed, put him on the floor. And we sit there in color for little man's anniversary. This year, we actually brought little man into our room and Don and I both sat there and colored with little man. So it's a complete 360 from what I had before. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. That's so great that you have that in your life, that level of support. So, you know, I'm wondering about some of the families that you've worked with, and I'm wondering if there's anything about working with grieving families that has surprised you or, you know, that you've learned and that you would like to share. I think I've worked with um, a couple of families, but one in particular was actually the very first family that we worked with. And it was literally not even a month after uh, little man came home and this family didn't have money to bury their child. And I can tell you from my experience, um, nobody plans on your child passing away. So why would you think, okay, well, I have to have money saved up if my child passes away. And back in 95, when little man passed away, Insurance companies wouldn't even insure a baby that was under a year old. So even the whole life insurance thing wasn't an option back then. When little man was exhumed, we had his plot at the cemetery and I had written a general letter and gave it to the cemetery. And I said, the, the foundation would love to help somebody, but this is what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for someone who can actually afford to pay for it. I'm looking for someone who has been in my situation or is in my situation that I was when 
my son passed away that they don't have the money and they're trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to do this? Do we have to take out loans? You know, all of that stuff that goes through your mind when you're, when you're trying to deal with this. And uh, the cemetery called us and said, we have a family that fits the criteria. And they gave us the background of the family. And we said, okay, then let's go ahead and move on and let them ease the pain from and stress for not having all of that. So we donated the plot. And then we also paid for the headstone for the baby. So when the family is ready, they don't have to worry about it, design it, and it's there. I dealt with a lot of uncertainty with little man when he passed away. I did a lot of it on my own. And I was one of those people that I wanted to know where my son was going to be. And I wanted the headstone to know that, you know, everyone to know that my son is here and, and everything. Working with this family, they were very much the opposite of what I was. And I learned throughout life, don't judge people. You don't know what's going on. You don't know the situation or anything like that. And I was good with that. They accepted it and they were given the pictures of little man that were in the letter. And in the letter, it had my name and my phone number. And if they chose to call and talk to me, that was great. I can tell you they had the funeral and they haven't yet put um, the headstone out for their child yet. And it's been almost three years. August 1st will be three years. So I, I've learned, even though people, the outcome that everyone wants is pretty much the same, you can't rush the outcome for somebody else. So you have to let them get to their point where they want to continue dealing with, you know, the, the death of your child, because not everybody deals with it the same way. And eventually they'll get to where they, they need to be and they're okay with it. So I've learned that I need needed to step back and let them work on their own terms and in their own time. And I did what I could do, gave them the information that we had, and it was theirs to do what they wanted. And I, I think that's a, a really great point is that there's, there's no right way to grieve. You know, that people have to do it in their own time and in their own way. But, you know, just hearing you talk about the cemetery plot, you know, that's not something that had even occurred to me that people don't plan to bury their children. That's not really the law of the universe, right? right. I mean, no, I was just going to agree with you, Jessica. There's something there's something that feels very unnatural about that process, losing, right. having to bury your child. Right. Yes. And, and so that's not something that people plan for. It's not, like you said, you don't put money aside for something like that. And I would guess most parents, right? Every parent is blindsided when something like that occurs. And, you know, unfortunately, there are going to be families that they don't have even the financial means to kind of move forward with what they need to do. And so the fact that the the foundation was able to do that for them is really great, you know, just to, again, take that stress off of their plate when so many other things are, are going on that they're having to deal with. Yes. And I think during my process with little man, and I think part of what I thought was, as people say, dealing with it. And I don't like that dealing with it, you know, term. And a lot of people don't know what else to say, you know, that your family or anything. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you're dealing with it the way you are. Um, not the best terms, but a lot of people don't know what to say. Um, but when I was processing all of my stuff with little man, I made, um, some very bold and outlandish decisions at that time. And everyone in my family thought I was nuts and probably belonged in a psych ward. But it was one of those things that I felt that I needed to do to get the little bit of closure that I felt I needed 
So I've learned that you just kind of let people do what they need to do. Yeah, I, I can definitely appreciate that. You know, your story, I was thinking about it and I was thinking about through grief. And again, you know, because I work exclusively with men, the way that men grieve and the way that they internalize things and the, some of the self-destructive things that people do. But I'm also reminded of the story of John Walsh and Adam Walsh and what John Walsh did with his grief when his son was kidnapped and murdered and the work that he has gone on to do since then. And it was him taking his grief and his anger and his sadness and everything and using that to really empower people and to make a difference in the world with America's Most Wanted and all the work that he's done that has been fascinating to me and inspiring to me to watch. That is to take your grief and to really use it to empower yourself and to really help a lot of people. So I, yeah, I agree with Jess. I think it's a great organization. I think it's a great idea. And I was curious if, what would you say, what would be sort of one piece of advice you could leave our listeners with that, what, that you would give to somebody who is going through child loss? I would tell them to grieve in your own way, take as long as you need, a lot of people say that over time, it gets easier. Over time, it doesn't get easier. It becomes more tolerable. You learn to deal and live a new norm. And I think the biggest thing that I would say is don't stop talking about your child. Well, thank you, Jen. And thank you for all of the good work that you're doing. This You, you mentioned several times that people often don't know what to say when somebody's lost a child. And I think because of that, it just doesn't get talked about. It's like one of those topics that it's, it's almost too difficult. And so I could imagine, you know, being in that situation, it's probably pretty difficult to find support, to find people that are willing to have those discussions with you just because it, it's such a difficult topic. And so I really appreciate the work that Little Man's Legacy is doing, the foundation. You mentioned David and I are advisory board members um, because we really believe in the mission and, and what your, your foundation does. And um, we have some kind of exciting things, right, coming up for the foundation. And I was wondering if you would just tell us a little bit about some of the events that you have planned. Um, of course. So on July 31st, we are having our first fundraiser at the Cycle Bar. It's a $25 minimum registration to participate and we'll have some vendors and some goodies and everything out there. And then August 1st, we're having our first memorial walk as the pandemic kind of put a kibosh on the big walk, but we're having a smaller walk. And at that point in time through the walk, we will visit Babyland. Um, they actually have two blocks at Fairmont and we will put a carnation on um, every baby's grave. Um, and that would be about 1300 carnations for Fairmont in the two blocks. And that will be on August 1st. That's great. And for our listeners who are local in the Denver area, uh, David and I will have some information about the Cycle Bar event that's going to be at the Southwest Plaza location. So we will post the details there if, if you would like to join us for a fundraising event for a really great organization. We would love to see as many of our listeners as possible. And we'll also have some information about the walk. 
And if people feel so inclined, we'll have the ability for you all to do some donations and also to sponsor David and I um, during the walk, if you uh, feel as strongly about this organization, about this mission as we do. So Jen, thank you so much for all of your hard work. Thank you for sharing your story. I know that that's not something that's easy to talk about, but I I do think that it's necessary um, so that people know that there's support, that there's help out there. Um, And you're just, you're doing amazing work. And so thank you for including David and I in your organization. Well, thank you guys for doing everything that you do for us as well. It's greatly appreciated. Little Man's Legacy is really doing some great work, and it's such an underserved area. So for our listeners who are interested in joining us for the charity ride at Cycle Bar at Southwest Plaza, we would love to see you all. We have the details on our website at psychologyafterdark.com, and they're also on Little Man's Legacy website at littlemanslegacy.org. There you can also learn more about the foundation, as well as Jen's story. We'll also have a link to Star Legacy Foundation on our website, so please check that out as well. Thank you all for joining us for this special bonus episode, and I have some very exciting news. We will be back on Monday, July 5th with the Season 4 premiere of Psychology After Dark. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo.